For truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Anything done in the name of Christ will not go unnoticed by God. Because even the smallest thing, like a cup of cold water, is communicating that you view yourself as the least. That you understand you are last in order to make others first. You may not have your reward from men on earth, but you will have your reward from your Father who is in heaven. That requires faith, does it not? That's why true Christians live these principles out. That's why false Christians don't. They don't because they can't. And they can't because they have no faith. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me again back to the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now, and uh, we've taken the last two weeks to look at an Old Testament passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 17, and God's covenant with Abraham. Uh, But we want to return to Mark chapter 9. And um, this morning we want to look just at a few verses, verses 33 through 37. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And this will be our text this morning. And they, speaking about Jesus and the apostles, came to Capernaum, And when he, that is Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated as we ask the Lord for help this morning. Our Father, we come before you praying, Lord, that you would open up this text to us, a very simple text, a very simple text that deals with a very sinful problem, the problem of pride and superiority among those who name the name of Christ. May it not be so among us, but because it is so among us, because we are all sinners and susceptible to pride, we pray that you would root out of our hearts this pridefulness. Help us to be humbled by your truth and ever vigilant and therefore diligent to be more holy and to be more humble because to be holy means that we are humble. We pray these things in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. The title of the message this morning is simply this, The Sin of Superiority. The Sin of 
superiority. We read here in verses 33 through 37 that the apostles are struggling with a superior attitude toward one another. The Bible speaks a lot about pride. There is a spiritual axiom repeated throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and New Testament. You can go to Proverbs chapter 3 and the Old Testament or you can go to places like 1 Peter chapter 5, James chapter 4 where the Bible says simply this, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Similarly, Jesus said in another place, namely Matthew chapter 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way of the world says whoever exalts himself will be the king of the world. But Jesus says whoever humbles himself in an ironic way will be the one who is exalted. Now, it's important to understand that as these apostles are discussing on the way, as verse 34 says there, the issue of who the greatest among them was, that this comes right after Jesus had made a very important prediction. Back in verse 30, they went on from there, passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. After the prediction of Jesus' humiliation and suffering, you have this childish dispute among the apostles regarding who is going to be the greatest when Jesus is gone. This wasn't the first time that Jesus made a prediction. Back in chapter 8, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And verse 32 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Immediately after Jesus made that first prediction of his humiliation and his suffering, Peter rebukes our Lord. And we say, well, it's because Peter didn't want our Lord to suffer. Sure, Peter did not want our Lord to suffer, but Peter himself also didn't want to suffer himself. Peter was setting his mind on the things that are on the earth. Peter didn't want to experience his own level of suffering for becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was filled with pride at the very moment that Jesus was filled with humility. That was the first prediction. Now the second prediction of Jesus' suffering and the disciples are disputing about who is the greatest. And they wouldn't fully learn their lesson because if you go with me to chapter 10, there is a third prediction. Verse 33, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. 
They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. I mean, this is the most detailed of all the predictions. Jesus even says what they're going to do to him in terms of mocking him and beating him. And what happens in verse 35? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory unbelievable that after these three predictions of the suffering and the humiliation of our Lord by his own lips that the lips of the apostles would voice their desire for status and glory and prestige that is until we look into our own hearts and understand that we are exactly like the apostles Verses 33 through 37 deals with the sin of superiority. The church has not been wholly delivered from this sort of attitude. Just look at the church today. Look at modern day evangelicalism and you see all around that there is a desire for the applause of man. There is a desire for titles. There is a desire for positions. There is a desire for a platform for honor and prestige and attention. This is a type of attitude that desires to be served rather than to serve. What is the key verse in Mark? Mark 10, 45. Son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The apostles are the foundation of the church and Jesus understands that unless these men are humbled, the church will be built on pride instead of humility. That's why John MacArthur in his commentary says these words, and I quote, the danger revealed in this passage is that pride ruins unity by destroying relationships. Relationships are based on loving sacrifice and service, on selfless deferring to and giving to others. Pride, being self-focused, is indifferent to others. Beyond that, it is ultimately judgmental and critical and therefore divisive. Because of that, pride is the most common destroyer both of relationships and churches. It plagued the Corinthian church, causing Paul to ask, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Quoting 1 Corinthians 3.3. MacArthur goes on to say, Knowing that pride is the wedge Satan uses to split churches and splinter relationships, the Lord stressed to the disciples the crucial necessity of humility. In other words, he confronts head-on the sin of superiority. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man in the church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all so long as God is glorified. And I believe today... All Christians need weaned from the sin of superiority. And I think verses 33 through 37 helps us. And just in case you're here this morning and you may think this message isn't for you, let me remind you that you're exactly who this message is for if you think this message isn't for you. This message is for everyone, beginning with me first. How do we wean our souls from the sin of superiority? Because if we don't, wean ourselves from the sin of superiority, 
It will splinter every relationship we have, both inside the church and outside of the church. It will splinter your marriage. It will splinter your relationship with your children. It will splinter your relationship with your larger family and with other Christians. Jesus is very clear here that there is a sort of ethos that is to be true about the people of God. There is a certain culture that is to mark the people of God, and that is a spirit of humility, not superiority, not pride, not arrogance, not indifference to others, but a willingness to serve others and love others and be merciful to others, not seeking to be great among others, but seeking to make others great among ourselves as we serve them. So in these verses, verses 33 through 37, very simply, there are four principles that help us wean our souls from the sin of superiority. And let me just say at the outset, this is a very simple message. We don't need to complicate things. It's very simple. Everyone struggles with pride. Everyone struggles with feelings of superiority as if they are better than other people. So let's not overcomplicate this. This is a sin of the heart. Uh, there, There doesn't need to be a deep sort of theology brought out about pride. This is a very, very practical matter. Jesus speaks very clearly and head on about it, both by his words and what he illustrates here. And the Holy Spirit wants us to learn these four principles to help wean our souls from the sin of superiority. The first principle is found in verses 33 and 34. And I just want to call this the ridiculous argument. Because we need to understand that It is absolutely a ridiculous argument to engage in to go down the path of thinking we are better than others and then to further go down that path to try to defend why we are better than others, why we are more superior than others, why we we are greater than others. And we see this illustrated with the apostles and the ridiculous argument that takes place. Notice verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' greater Galilean ministry. That ministry has now ended. It's been very clear by Mark that he's already on his way to Jerusalem. But as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he passes through Galilee and he goes into Capernaum. He was staying with the apostle Peter and his house. And that is why verse 33 says that when he was in the house, he then asked the question, what were you discussing on the way? There's the definite article there, the house, because this is the house that Jesus had been living in. I'm assuming that he's gathering whatever he needs for his trip to then continue on to Jerusalem as the scriptures will be fulfilled that he will suffer and he will die for sinners in this great act, the greatest of all acts of humility. As he's in the house, Peter's house, on the inside, Notice Jesus does not rebuke the apostles publicly, but he does rebuke them. There's some love and grace and mercy and tenderness, but there's also some firmness. Jesus always had the perfect balance of how to confront sin and when to confront sin and where to confront sin. But nevertheless, he confronts it. He asks the end of verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? Now, we need to ask the question, Is it really true that Jesus was wholly unaware of what they were discussing? After all, they had had conversation as they were going along the way. And I think that 
Jesus understands the looming realities of the cross. I think there were times in their journey to Capernaum on their way to Jerusalem. There were periods in which our Lord wanted to be alone with his father in prayer and perhaps walked several steps ahead of the other apostles. And he probably could hear some murmuring and mumbling and perhaps a little bit of disputing. We know that Jesus' human nature by itself was not omniscient. Jesus had a human nature and a divine nature. His human nature by itself was not omniscient. He didn't know everything according to his human nature. But there were times in which his divine nature imparted certain knowledge to his human nature. And maybe that is what is happening here. There are also times in which... Our Lord appears wholly ignorant from a human standpoint of what is going on because he oftentimes asks questions to receive information on particular matters. There, of course, is a mystery to this, and we can't dive into the depths of the mystery of the humanity and the deity of Jesus. We simply affirm both, and we don't always know how exactly all of this works. But I think in this case, the question at the end of verse 33, what were you discussing on the way, was not asked because Jesus didn't know. He is asking the question for the principal purpose that simply by asking the question, it forces the apostles to reflect on just exactly how ridiculous their discussion was. Just exactly how ridiculous and foolish and petty and childish their argument was. So we read in verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way, Mark explains, because we don't know yet, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They're silent. Verse 34 says they kept silent. There were no words and no one even attempted to say anything. No one attempted to justify what happened on the road because they all saw very shamefully how ridiculous it was to argue about who the greatest was among them. In fact, this is a wordless admission, this silence is, to their sin of superiority. They are admitting their guilt by not saying anything. There's no justification for it. They know they are guilty as charged. Christ had just told them he's on the way to suffer in Jerusalem. They are on their way with him, and they have this ridiculous argument. You know, it's been my experience that adults can act more like children than children can act like children at times. And sadly, the discussion or the argument was ongoing, only briefly interrupted by Christ here. But even the night of the Last Supper, the very night of our Lord's death, they continued this argument. If you go with me to Luke chapter 22, on the very night our Lord was betrayed, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He's having the Passover meal with the apostles. And he is betrayed by Judas. In verse 22, the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? And then right after that, verse 24, in the midst of that conversation, a dispute arose also among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, 
The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over you, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's really rather shocking that at the lowest point of our Lord's life, this ridiculous argument would begin and continue. And we need to give a little bit of grace to the apostles. After all, Judaism by Jesus' day had really morphed into a false religion that was wholly obsessed with appearance. Yes, physical appearance for sure, but mostly status and rank and prestige and honor. And Jesus Address this. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spoke about the religious establishment. And he said to the crowds and to the disciples in Matthew 23, verse 1, going into verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Do you see that? For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Little boxes with verses, Bible verses written in them on parchment, hanging from their head. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, on and on. This was what marked Judaism. This is what marked the celebrity culture of the religious leaders. And so now the apostles, with all of this talk of the kingdom, with all of this talk of them being essentially the foundation of the church, it's all gone to their head. And now they begin to bide and devour one another and to argue with one another as to who is the greatest. Instead of arguing about who would serve more after Christ's death, they're arguing about who would be the greatest. Instead of deferment and humility, there is demanding of one's rights and pride. And perhaps this is because Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. There they saw Jesus transfigured. Jesus was very clear to them. They weren't to tell anyone what they saw, but the other disciples knew they saw something that they didn't see. And to their credit, Peter, James, and John didn't tell the other apostles what they saw, but I often wonder, did they hold this as a secret over the other's heads and a pious act of silent superiority? I know something you don't know. I saw something you haven't seen and I can't tell you and I won't tell you. Maybe that was the very thing that caused the dispute and caused the argument. And as I said, it's very hard for us to imagine that they hit this low point at this time until we look at our own hearts and then we understand that the Judaism of Jesus' day is a lot like Christianity of our own day. A religion of superiority, a focus on status reduced to churchianity with very little true spirituality. The rabbis had many sayings and the rabbis had many writings. There are many interesting discussions that the rabbis would have. 
One of those discussions was who would sit closer to the throne of God in paradise. And arguments would ensue in which one rabbi would say that he was going to sit closer to the throne of God than even the holy angels. And even in the way that they ate their meals, there was a pecking order of where one sat, who they sat with, were they sitting at a table of honor. They were obsessed with a pecking order. All of this talk of the kingdom was causing the apostles to jockey for position. And all of it is so sad, it is all so superficial, and it is all so sinful. And yet it is all so true about our own hearts. If we examine our own hearts, we will admit this morning and we will confess this morning we have the same exact tendencies. And it seems to me that the point of Scripture, it seems to me that the point of Jesus lovingly confronting the apostles is simply this. Apostles, you are the foundation of the church and if you build the foundation of the church on pride, you will produce prideful people. And when there is prideful people, there is splintering and divisions and factions and there is no good thing, there is no service, there is no humility, and there is no love. As the foundation of the church, the apostles must build the church on the foundation of humility and service and sacrifice because after all, Christ is the cornerstone of the church and he himself is the most of all. Well, Jesus could have really nailed these apostles. He could have really given it to them, but he doesn't even confront them with an accusation. He just confronts them with the question and the silence. Can you imagine the silence and the look on the apostles' faces? But now Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. He has them in a teachable position. Remember, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They're now in a humble place to listen. And that moves us to the second principle. If we are to wean ourselves from the sin of superiority, we must see the ridiculous argument it is to even think or to argue that we are greater than others. And after seeing the ridiculous argument, number two, we must see the right attitude. What is the right attitude that we are to have? Verse 35, and he sat down, that is Jesus, and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, understand the significance of this. It says that Jesus sat down. That was the normal teaching position of every Jewish rabbi. So this isn't Jesus sitting down to relax. This is not story time. This is sermon time. This is Jesus the rabbi, the Savior, the Holy Son of God, sitting down authoritatively, ready to preach and to teach on the importance of humility. And not only did he sit down, but it says he called the 12 to him. Now the 12 were already in the house. He didn't have to call far. The homes were not that big in ancient Palestine. The fact that he calls them together means this is a call to worship. This is a summons of the people of God to hear the word of God, to hear the word incarnate speak about what really matters when it comes to kingdom service. It's ridiculous to argue about who is the greatest. The right attitude to have in this little mini sermon is found at the end of verse 35. If anyone would be first, 
he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus must change the trajectory of their attitude for them to ask not who is the greatest, but who is the least, because the least among them, paradoxically so, will become the greatest. That's the point. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and service servant of all. That very simply put, this is a spiritual principle, true greatness does not come by standing on top of or above others, but by bending beneath them and becoming their servant. And instead of being preoccupied with prestige, they needed to be saturated with service. They needed to become last of all if they wanted to be first in the mind of God, great in the mind of God. And let me just say, Jesus is not here against greatness. He's not arguing here against the principle of greatness or ambition. Ambition in and of itself is not sinful, but there is a such thing as sinful ambition. And Jesus is not against greatness or being great. We are to do all things to the glory of God. What he is doing is he is redefining greatness according to heaven's judgment, not the earth's judgment, not the world's way of thinking. The world's way of thinking says to climb on top of other people, to conquer other people, to point to self and talk about how great self is. But remember, Jesus had said before, quite paradoxically, If you want to live, you have to what? Die. If you want to save your life, you have to what? Lose your life. So here he's saying, if you want to be great, fine, let's talk about greatness. If you want to be great, learn to serve. Learn to serve. Quit trying to be king of the hill and instead serve those below you. Because if you don't, you will have no reward in heaven. That's really what he's getting at. Back in Matthew chapter 6, again, Jesus speaking about those who, um, well, quite frankly, they, they wanted the place of honor. They didn't have the right attitude. They wanted to be noticed by others. And so Jesus says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What was their reward? The applause of man, not the applause of God. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If anyone would be first, Jesus says, He must be last of all and servant of all. Principle found throughout Scripture, for example, Proverbs 29, verse 23, says that one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Or Proverbs 16 and verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And even the prophet Isaiah speaks very clearly about God's grace to the lowly. In Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We read earlier in Psalm 138, 
That God essentially smiles on the lowly and the contrite and the humble. But to those who are prideful, God does not know. To those who are prideful, God does not look. He is gracious to those who are humble. But he is opposed to the proud. And of course, there are many examples throughout Scripture of those who sought prestige They sought to exalt themselves and they were brought low by God. Remember that principle. Jesus said, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That is true historically. One example is Sennacherib. If you turn back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, Sennacherib is an example of one who exalted himself, who was placed low. 2 Chronicles 32, and I think it's important to go back to the Old Testament to reinforce this timeless principle. What was true in the Apostles' day was also true in the Old Testament, and it's also true for today. This is the way that God operates. You exalt yourself, he's going to humble you. He's going to lower you. It's a warning to us. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and we read about the blasphemy of Sennacherib. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, verse 9 who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem? Before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. Do not believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And his servant said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them in order that they may take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem and they spoke of the gods of the people of the earth, which are the work of of men's hands verse 20 then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos prayed because of this and cried to heaven and God answered verse 21 the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria and so he returned with shame Sennacherib did Shame on his face to his own land, and when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah in the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side, and many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. Very simple pr- principle. Sennacherib, 
exalted himself and was humbled by God. Hezekiah humbled himself and prayed to God and was exalted. And so too, the people of God. It's a principle that runs throughout Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is another individual who exalted himself and God brought low. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil king. We read here in Daniel chapter 4. That at the end of 12 months, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Beating his breast, standing on his own laurels, promoting himself, full of pride. And verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to him whom he will. And immediately, verse 33 says, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws quite a contrast to the puffed up man of pride walking on the rooftop of the palace you don't think God is serious you exalt yourself and you will be humbled you humble yourself and God will exalt you you place yourself as first and God will place you as last You place yourself as last, and God will place you as first. This is the right attitude to have. And we could go on into the New Testament, and we could speak about King Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, who also was made low by God. He did not give God glory, Acts tells us, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Because he appointed a day, where he got in his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne, he delivered an oration, and the people shouted, this is the voice of God. And God said, nope, there's one God. You exalt yourself, and I will humble you. You say, well, it's natural for all of us to be filled with some sense of pride. I mean, that's what helps us get up in the morning and do what we do and go about our day and be motivated to do better and to have more success and to be what God causes us to be. Pride is sort of a necessary evil, people say. But I want you to understand the significance of this. When you place yourself as first, God will place you as last. When You exalt yourself, God will humble you. This is a principle that is true with Christians and non-Christians alike. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a Christian. Sennacherib wasn't a Christian. Agrippa wasn't a Christian. This works outside of the church as it does inside the church and how much truer it is for the people of God who are called to be holy and called to be humble. I remind you of someone else who was filled with pride. He first went by the name of Lucifer. And we read about him in Isaiah 14, how you are fallen from heaven, 
O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. And what does God say? You tried to exalt yourself, but you are brought low down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? You have been brought low, O Lucifer, day star, son of the dawn. To be filled with pride rather than humility. To be marked by the sin of superiority is no light thing. It is absolutely and fundamentally satanic to be filled with pride. And that's why I always say, show me a humble person and I'll show you a Christian. Show me a prideful person who is indifferent to others and beats his chest and thinks the world of himself. And I'll show you someone who, though they may profess the name of Christ, are showing by their fruit or lack thereof that they truly don't know the humble Christ they say they know. And that is what Jesus is saying in this passage back in Mark chapter 9. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. For God to take notice of anyone, they must be last. Someone once said, there are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord, but too few of us who are willing to do the little things. And I think that is the way of the world, not the way of the word. We are to be willing to do the little things. Jesus came to serve. He called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Say very simply to you this morning, can you say with our Lord, quoting Luke 22, verse 27, but I am among you as one who serves. That was our Lord. Philippians chapter two, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. We shouldn't seek to climb higher than our Lord, should we? He went low. How low is too low for you? Are you better than our Lord? You see, those are the sorts of questions that must confront us in this text. And now as we move to verse 36, we see that Jesus seeks to drive home the principal attitude of verse 35. The right attitude is to place ourselves as last and then God will see us as first. Well, that leads to verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And he actually took this child, verse 36 says, into his arms. This is the relevant analogy. The ridiculous argument and the right attitude leads to the relevant analogy. Jesus provides a living parable for the apostles 
Because what he is saying is this, how I'm treating this child is how you should treat one another. It's, it's quite a moving scene. First, in verse 36, it says that Jesus took the initiative. Jesus took a child and put him in the midst. So as Jesus is teaching on this, listen to this, there are children in the midst. There isn't a children's church. There are children in the midst. And not only are the children in the midst, but Jesus is so full of affection and so full of love that he actually took this little boy up into his arms. I think this was Peter's son. They are in Peter's house in Capernaum. Peter was married. He lived with his mother-in-law. We know that he had children. And I think that is somewhat ironic. That very likely, the very apostle who started the whole argument, the apostle Peter, the one who always spoke and wanted to be heard, the loudest one, the one full of the most pride, it's his little boy that Jesus humbly picks up in the middle of his sermon and holds in his hands as if to say, this child is welcome wherever I am. I am here to serve this child. Do you imagine the security that child must have felt to be held by Jesus? The innocence of the child, the dependence of the child, perhaps even the playfulness of the child. There are many times that I'll hold children and one of the first things that they do is try to pluck my beard out. And I picture this little boy playing with Jesus' beard. Jesus not bothered a bit. Jesus making the point that where this child is, is where Jesus is going to be. And here is the point that like Jesus, we are to receive all of God's children, uninhibited with no reservations, no arrogance, no superiority, that Christians, many of them are like needy children. Christians many times are dependent and needy and even sometimes whiny. Christians sometimes can be very immature, immature in their behavior, struggling with sin, immature in their theology, not fully grasping what it is there to believe, but like a child trying to learn. What do we do with those Christians that are like children? We accept them, we receive them, we embrace them, we serve them. We don't write them off. We don't act as if we are better than them. We welcome them into the fold of the church. We feed them the word of God just as a father would chop up food for his children. Maybe it's smaller bites. We give it to them and serve them and they have little accomplishments and they have little influence and they have little to give, but that's okay. We have a lot to give and so we serve and we put ourselves beneath these children of God, these little children and serve them. Jesus is comparing Please don't miss this. The people of God to little children. What does Psalm 127 verse 3 say? Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. I mean, the principle is being applied to all of God's children. That all of God's children, all of God's people are to be embraced, to be served, to be loved, not to be written off, not to be looked down upon with superiority, but to be gracious 
and to be merciful. You know, the early church dealt with the sin of superiority. James chapter 2. Turn to James chapter 2. They would have done well to see this relevant analogy of this little child that represents the people of God. Because in James chapter 2, there's the sin of superiority, or we could call it the sin of partiality. It's the same thing. You can call it pettiness, or you can call it pridefulness. But it's partiality, superiority. And James, the half-brother of our Lord, instructs the church. He says in verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, "Uh, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. James says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's how serious God views even our attitude toward other people, even the way that we talk about other people. The way we speak to other people conveys what is truly in our hearts. You can say whatever you want to say. You can say, I'm the greatest Christian that's ever lived, and I'm better than anyone in this room. And beat your breast. And all it is is a clinging symbol. 1 Corinthians 13 says apart from love. The attitude of love. The grace of love. The mercy of love. Your actions in serving others. So if children serve as an analogy to God's children. Then we need to take this very seriously. Because in the final judgment. The Bible is very clear that we will be judged according to how we treat others. Listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And notice what He tells them. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Same sort of language. One of the least of these brothers. One of these other little children that I have redeemed. When you have received them and embraced them, you have proven that your faith is real. The root of our salvation is our faith. 
but the fruit of our salvation are our good works and our service to the other children of God. So Jesus is pressing this home. Four principles to wean our souls from the sin of superiority. We've seen the ridiculous argument that none of us should ever be engaged in. And the right attitude that all of us should adopt. That if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We've seen the relevant analogy that we are to receive others like children, as Jesus did. The ridiculous argument, the right attitude, the relevant analogy now takes us, number four, to the required application. Here is where Jesus brings it all home. Verse 37, after he took the child in his arms, he then said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is simply saying, it's only when we have welcomed the least of these do we become great. And only then have we truly welcomed Christ and his Father. Because the true children of God have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit residing in them. So when you receive them and serve them, you've received Christ. And when you've received Christ, you've not just received him, but you've received the Father who has sent him. It's a package deal. The required application is to receive and to serve and to love the children of God. And if you look down with me at verse 41, For truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Anything done in the name of Christ will not go unnoticed by God because even the smallest thing like a cup of cold water is communicating that you view yourself as the least. That you understand you are last in order to make others first. You may not have your reward from men on earth, but you will have your reward from your Father who is in heaven. That requires faith, does it not? That's why true Christians live these principles out. That's why false Christians don't. They don't because they can't, and they can't because they have no faith. And Jesus says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. These are serious words that our Lord gives regarding the sin of superiority. To simply conclude by saying this, true greatness consists in three things. Not in one status, but in one service. Not in one status, but in one service. Not in what others think about you, but who you really are before the Lord in serving others. True greatness consists not in status, but service. Number two, true greatness consists not in a title, but in the concept of teamwork. When it comes to the people of God, understanding the various roles and gifts and functions, Greatness that marks a church will mark a church because of teamwork, not titles. 
True greatness consists not in status but service, not in a title but teamwork, and number three, not in being high but in going low. Being willing to serve in the little things proves that you value all of the children of God, even the least of those among us. And perhaps it's ironic that Jesus took this little child in his arms. It's almost as if indirectly Jesus was telling the apostles, you boys are acting like a bunch of children. You don't understand that true greatness is not about making yourself out to be something that you are not. It's admitting your faults, confessing your sins, living a transparent life, being humble before the Lord. And again, it's been my experience that when a Christian faithfully does that, you don't have to walk around talking about how great you are. People will view you as a great Christian. And you will deflect that praise because you don't want to hear it, and you should. But the Lord will always bless and honor those who understand what true greatness is, who root out the sin of superiority. May God, by his grace, help us all to do that very thing. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for the scriptures, which, Lord, in a very confronting way, reveal to us sin in our own hearts. And yet at the same time, we can't help but think about how gracious our Lord Jesus dealt with the apostles, so full of pride at the very moment that our Lord had on his mind the crucifixion and all of the humility that would come with that, these apostles were arguing among themselves. Even in the midst of that, where Jesus could have really come down harsh, he was gracious. He opposed the proud. He gave grace to them because they finally got into a teachable position. They received the grace of his word that would help them. And when we study the lives of the apostles, we, we see that ultimately they were very, very humbling men. Men who lived humble lives. Men who sought to honor you. Lord, we want to be like that. We want to be like Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray that this hymn of response would be a prayer to you on our behalf and on behalf of the other brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.